0: I'm not going to debate you, Jerry. I'm not going to sit here and debate you. 90.7!
1: Ladies and gentlemen, it is good to be back on the air. Welcome to Tuscaloosa's own and only movie talk show here on 90.7 The Capstone voice of the university of alabama every saturday morning at 9 a.m you can tune into FM to find informed and entertaining discussion on all things movies i am ben flanagan and i'm joined by cory craft the former editor-in-chief entertainment editor and lowly volunteer movie critic for the crimson white and the current editor of the corral yearbook which i'm sure are available everywhere right now so you can just contact Corey at Corey.a.craft. that's right at gmail.com and this is for the University of Alabama. Now, you can read both me and Corey in Tusk Magazine, your weekly entertainment tabloid, found in every Friday issue of the Tusk News. Today, in the forthcoming episodes of our show, will almost be totally dominated by Academy Award discussion. And uh, later, we'll be joined by FilmNerds.com creator Matt Scalici to talk about the headlines surrounding last Tuesday's announcements of the 2009 nominees. But we want to start off with some industry news. And uh, you may have heard about it. Avatar is the new all-time box office champion both domestic and worldwide surpassing cameron's historical juggernaut titanic once and for all Uh, number one here's my big question how big of a deal is this title the all-time box office champ and number two how big of a deal is it that james cameron helmed both movies and Corey and i are about to discuss this but we also have another guest my brother graham who is live from Nashville, Tennessee. And if you were watching Campbell Brown last night on CNN, I think you probably saw him. Graham, are you on the line? I am. Great. Well, uh, how does it feel to be CNN's new talent?
0: Uh, it's such an honor. And, uh, you know, we got a whole other day of me today, and uh, Sarah Palin is going to be in the house. So uh, I'm working on a report that will likely end up on CNN.com. So uh, it should be a lot of fun. I can't wait to hear what she has to say.
1: Great, we'll keep our uh, TVs on and our attention towards you, Graham Flanagan, CNN correspondent. No longer just the Graham cam, too, which is impressive. You've moved on. You're, you're primetime now. Um, we'll start the question off to you, Graham. Thanks for joining us. I know you had to wake up early to do this. The question I just asked before, how big of a deal is this all-time box office title now?
0: It's a huge deal. We had to wait 12 years for anything to eat well. I mean, I was going to come close. Even though The Dark Knight made some rumblings, but it kind of, it, it got close once it kind of started to run out of gas at the box office. And I think it hit a ceiling of $533 million. But it's a huge deal. And it's uh, even more significant that the movie to to uh, Unseen Titanic was directed by the same filmmaker that made Titanic, James Cameron.
1: Corey? Yeah, I agree completely. Um, James Cameron, you, you've got to think that he's got carte blanche now in Hollywood. He's, he's helmed, uh, well, he helmed the biggest movie of all time 12 years ago that swept the Academy Awards. Now he's helmed the movie that has seemingly revitalized the theatrical experience for, for millions of people. Uh, it's captured the public's attention in a way that nothing has since Titanic. Uh, so he's got to be commended for that. And, you know, I, I don't even particularly like Avatar that much, but this is such a—I mean, it's, it's an amazing achievement for him. Well, you guys may or may not be pessimists like I am, at least— specifically about avatar i did not think that it would come near titanic's record either of them i thought it would do fairly well internationally because it's the kind of scope uh and uh, adventure that international audience tend to eat up i mean look at 2012 how that's done overseas but james cameron just sort of raises that bar uh, obviously he did it with titanic and he's done it again with avatar but i did not think it would come near uh the domestic growth of titanic ram did you anticipate
0: that um. No, I, at the outset, I did not think that it would be a contender, and it really did. I knew it would be a hit, but honestly, I, I thought that because of how kind of strange the story was with with the, the blue creatures.
1: Century Fox or any other major studio. Uh, are you now convinced that if James Cameron asks for a blank check, you can rest assured that he'll deliver? Yeah, absolutely. Um, if I were Twentieth Century Fox, I'd be trying to talk him into doing a sequel uh, to Avatar right now. But um, like I said, I think he's got he's got blank checks all over all over Hollywood now to do whatever he wants because uh, he can deliver. He's proven that he he can take twelve years between movies and come back and just knock
0: it out of the park.
1: Graham, what do you think?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, he, he had car uh, after, after Titanic. You remember, I mean, everybody was paying down his forehead, you know, making something else. Yeah, for the Spider-Man design. He decided to uh, use his resources to develop uh, undersea uh, te- <laughs> uh, filming technology to make those documentaries about uh, the deep sea. And that was his choice. And he just said, you know what, I'm going to take my time uh, and, and spend a decade developing
1: for inside information, Graham.
0: That's what he told me uh, in my face. He said that that, that they wanted the studio, wanted it sooner rather than later, and that they're getting cracking because uh, the groundwork's been laid. They they've created the technology now. They need to, uh, come up with a story that they can imagine the, the effect ensures the right For
1: a little background, Graham produced a segment on Campbell Brown's show, which was then hosted by Ollie Bell. Now, I'm of the belief that much of this film's enormous success can be attributed to its distribution plan, and the geniuses who decided on the release date. Now, I think the film's most worthy adversaries were probably Alvin and the Chipmunks, the Squeakwolf, uh, Guy Ritchie, Sherlock Holmes, which was kind of a box office question mark in and of itself. But otherwise, you just had movies like The Book of Eli, Did You Hear About the Morgans, Legion, The Tooth Fairy, and Edge of Darkness, which opened last week, none of which posed any serious threat to Avatar what do you think of the release strategy for it it paid off for them in the end you know I I guess I'm revealing how terrible I am at at predicting box office but back in you know early December I I kind of viewed Sherlock Holmes as a major impediment to Avatar and to be fair Sherlock Holmes and the Alvin and the Chipmunks sequel did very well for themselves and and, you know Alvin and the Chipmunks was also distributed by Fox so you know they're laughing all the way to the bank right now Um, Sherlock Holmes didn't quite underperform, but, but Avatar just took the air out of the room, I think. It turned out to to capture people's attention in a way that I don't think anybody saw coming. And it does have pretty much free reign over its 3D screens until Alice in Wonderland comes out. That's a major contributing factor. I think that we're not going to see Avatar take too much of a downturn until Alice in Wonderland takes away those 3D screens, and I think that's in three weeks or so. Well, Graham, this kind of reminds me, that this is kind of an example of a polar opposite of, say, a few years ago when Superman Returns was released uh, the week before the Pirates of the Caribbean first sequel. Uh, Avatar basically scheduled it in mid-December when it had the foresight to know that it had barely any competition at
0: all. What do you think of that? Well, I think it had competition. Uh, I think it's made competition with itself uh, in that people needed to get in there and not get motion sickness from the 3D, and they had to get in there and embrace the story. You know, uh, I think that what has kept this movie afloat is the fact that it was embraced by women um, and that they that they, uh, that they, got into it. They told their friends to go see it, and then it became, a, it became an event.
1: Result assigned that due to increased ticket sales uh, and you know 3D and IMAX prices that any large-scale studio project could threaten the record or is Avatar a legitimate
0: pop cultural phenomenon?
1: You know, I, I would say that Avatar is probably the real deal, but let me let me talk a minute about 3D. Uh, as a result of of Avatar's astronomical success, we're seeing a lot of studios try to hastily retrofit their upcoming releases for 3D release. We, we just saw, in fact, Warner Brothers announced the delay of Clash of the Titans to the first weekend of April to accommodate uh, 3D for that film, uh, along with 3D uh, for the last two Harry Potter movies. you gotta, you got to think that Paramount's putting the pressure on Michael Bay to uh, shoot Transformers 3 in 3D. Uh, I, I think that the 3D and the spectacle of Avatar is, is, of course, a large part of why it's so successful. But I also think that we're going to see, I guess, the luster of 3D fade a little bit in the coming months with so many releases, with so many hastily put together 3D releases uh, of films that weren't designed for 3D like Avatar was. So I wonder if we're going to see audience fatigue in the coming months Uh and I wonder if that will affect the inevitable Avatar sequel. I think that this is going to be um, a legitimate pop culture phenomenon in that it was the first major release to really capture everybody's attention in 3D that, that was designed for 3D. Um, and because of that, I don't think it's going to be toppled
0: anytime soon. Graham? Yeah, as far as 3D goes, uh, this is, I think that the entire format depended on Avatar's success. And after this, a lot of people are, like Corey says, chomping gets the bit. It's just their movies in 3D. But what, this, what I'm really looking forward to and what really matters is uh, are the movies that are being developed right now that are created for the 3D experience.
1: original work and it's been able to achieve this kind of success is impressive to me. It's not a sequel. It's not an adaptation. Um, it's not Transformers 2 that um, was able to get this record. It wasn't The Dark Knight. Uh, this was almost based entirely on uh, James Cameron's name and what he was able to come up with and put on screen. Graham, do you think that that's significant?
0: Absolutely. I, mean, I think it's great that uh, the first... Uh, You know, major 3D success stories, original stories, you know, it's tough for studios to to, to make that kind of investment on uh, a property that the audience is going to see that familiar with. But I think with James Cameron, they were willing to take that risk based on three D. success. uh, You know, like those those three properties that I mentioned, the three upcoming projects are all based on these books, the remakes. might be a while before somebody go wild with but you
1: think Well, Graham, uh, normally we'll start the show with what we call either the double or triple feature, which was this, this is what that was a part of, uh, where we'll, we'll discuss major industry headlines that catch our attention, but due to today's featured subject matter, we'll cut this segment a bit short to make a little room for our Oscar discussion later on, but we will come back. After this, to focus on An Education, uh, the film that is nominated for Best Picture. And, Graham, I really do appreciate you waking up. and uh, I know you've got a busy schedule there in Nashville, and good luck today. Hopefully you get some good um, Palin footage and uh, content and come back on this show. Yeah,
0: no, I'm, I'm usually up uh, this time anyway on Saturdays so that I can watch Tsunami. Oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> That's the idea. That's our audience. We're competing with Tsunami. Yeah, good luck with that. It's going to be tough. <laughs> <laughs> I know. All right, well, thanks again, Graham. Thanks, Thank Ben. Alright. Um All right. Um, but we will come back, and we will focus on an education. Uh, but before that, here is a track from the Up in the Air soundtrack called Help Yourself by Sad Brad Smith. We will be right back.
0: What a mercy. Is this the end of recall? 90.7.
1: That music that is perfectly appropriate for the movie that we're about <laughs> to discuss. Um, An Education just opened in Tuscaloosa at the Cobb Hollywood 16. It is also playing at the Regal Trustful 16 in Birmingham. Um, this is a film that stars Carrie Mulligan, who is a Best Actress nominee. And it's nominated for uh, maybe a couple of others. Adapted screenplay and picture. Adapted screenplay, just, so just the three? Yes. Okay, well, this story is about a... It's a coming-of-age tale about a teenage girl in the 1960s, suburban London, and how her life changes with the arrival of a playboy that's nearly twice her age. He's played by Peter Sarsgaard. I saw this movie last night. Corey, you saw it a while back. I don't know if you saw it again. I, I didn't have a chance to see it again. You didn't see it Well, look, I like this movie. I liked it a lot. Um, mm-hmm. It. I, I think that... It has so many strengths in it, just in terms of its presentation. Um, it, there, there isn't anything fancy about it visually, necessarily, but it's very um, competently made. Uh, there's nothing that tells me that the director of this film, her name is Lone Scherfig. I don't know yeah. if that's the pronunciation. Yeah, lo- yeah. Uh, she's a Danish filmmaker. She's a she's actually a Dogman '95, right? A former director. That kind of kinda blew my mind because yeah. I mean, if you know the rules of Dogman '95, you know they're very uh, there is this very minimalist style that doesn't really adhere to any of the traditional filmmaking techniques. And then the education is about as, um, it's very stylish. It's, it's very controlled. Uh, yeah, too. very controlled. Stylish might not be the word because, again, like I said, nothing fancy. The camera doesn't really try and uh, become a character in and of itself. Sure. Uh, but it just tells the story very simply and very beautifully, outlined. might The colors are nice, the costumes are perfect, the sets are perfect. They really capture 1960s suburban London and even 1960s Paris, too. But here's what I like about this movie. I think that a lot of uh, young women will enjoy this because um, essentially you kind of have, and I might be reaching here a little bit, but you kind of have a female film version of maybe Catcher in the Rye in a way where you have this coming-of-age tale about a young person um, in high school, almost graduating high school. Who is having to learn uh, very critical lessons uh, when it comes to making that transition to becoming an adult or uh, making the right decisions? Really, I mean, the film is called an education, and the character receives an education on a lot of different uh, with a lot and in a lot of different facets. And the characters around her receive similar educations. Well, everybody's learning things in this movie. Um, it's true, and be they academics or just life lessons people are learning. Her father, uh, her new boyfriend, her mother, her teachers, they're all learning new things, and everybody, this ensemble, I think, is very strong, and everybody contributes uh, in, a, in a significant way, and I, I was impressed with this film. Yeah, I think where you see the Dogme 95 influences with, uh, with the director's control of, of the actors, and with uh, the vibrancy that every single actor in this ensemble brings to the proceedings. Uh, Carrie Mulligan gives one of my favorite performances of the year, She's, uh, she's mostly an unknown actress to this point. She's done some stage work, and she was... Uh, I think her first movie role was in Joe Wright's Pride and Prejudice. She plays one of the sisters who didn't really talk. Um, but uh, she's excellent in this movie, and, and to compliment her, we have a, a really good performance from the always reliable Peter Sarsgaard as, as the, the sort of charming but also at the same time oddly creepy sort of sort of playboy, and then I think the emotional heart of this movie uh, is is Alfred Molina as, as her father um, who has just some great scenes uh, especially near the end of the film, al- along with uh, Olivia Williams who plays another sort of inspirational teacher type character that's quite different from the one she played in Rushmore back in the day. Uh, throw in, you know, a really good supporting performance from Rosamund Pike uh, and uh, a great Two scene performance from Emma Thompson. Uh, this is, I mean, the strongest ensemble of the year as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and who's the uh, young man that played Peter Sarsgaard's friend, Dominic Cooper? Dominic Cooper. Right. Yeah. Did, he, did he appear in Mamma Mia? Yes. Okay, well, yeah. I had read that Orlando Bloom was actually supposed to play that part and he dropped out a week before filming, and I'm kind of glad he did because Dominic Cooper gives a kind of um, very smooth and sort of unpredictable performance right. because there's a lot of mystery surrounding his character and Peter Sarstar You're not really sure how they make their money and what they're up to. You do find out, uh, to an extent, uh, what they do, and that sort of affects Carrie Mulligan's 16-year-old character, who might be in over her head hanging out with these uh, near 30-year-old um, characters. Um, but I really like Carrie Mulligan. I think that it's a very mature performance, and obviously she was 22 when she made this, right. playing a 16-year-old. She totally pulls off playing a 16-year-old, by the way. Oh, absolutely. I mean, physically, she does look like one. And she's playing opposite what seems to be a 16-year-old actor early in the movie, this uh, high school boy that's kind of courting her, yeah. uh, who's, who gives a great performance. Uh, and He ends up in the household um, sort of staring down Alfred Molina. <laughs> being overcome by him. And I agree with you. Alfred Molina is kind of uh, the heart and soul of this movie to an extent. I mean, Mulligan dominates right. it. But Alfred Molina, he got early Oscar consideration back when this movie was released. Everybody was praising him, but he just fell short this year for whatever reason. I think he probably deserved a nomination. Um, you would probably give him Matt Damon's uh, oh, totally. nomination. Yeah, I think if you're going to replace it anybody, it would be him. But, um, no, I I did like it. Here's where it kind of fell short for me, though. I loved the ending of the movie, the first one. Mm -hmm. See, and without giving anything away, uh, the film kind of uh, cops out and provides this little epilogue that totally didn't belong there. I think that the scene before told us everything we needed to know about what would happen to these characters. Yet we get uh, this epilogue that has this kind of corny narration, uh, and it ends the movie, where I think that if we... Uh, ended it right before we cut to that, we would have had potentially a great film. But to me, this fall's just short. What did you think of that? I didn't mind the epilogue. I, your complaint is common. You know, I've I've heard that from from several people who have have seen the movie too, including our, our mutual friend Phil Owen, who had the same problem. Um, I think, I mean, it really bothered me. I kind of liked the last few lines of narration. I understand they were probably superfluous, but but I enjoyed them. Just because I, I loved the film so much up to that point. I think that if the film was going to go on, that scene might have been okay, but I think the story was over right before that. If, if we just cut to black right there, got our credits, and got out of there, we would have been in great shape. But an education is great. I would, you know, if we're talking about who deserves those that best actress uh, win, obviously neither of us feel that Sandra Bullock deserves to be the winner of the Oscar this year, but I would still stick with Gabby Sidibe. Precious, I think that is a thunderous performance. And I do think Carrie Mulligan has an extremely bright future if she and her agent make good decisions together. I don't think Wall Street 2 <laughs> is necessarily the direction she needs to go. We'll, we'll see. see. Yeah, we'll see. It could be good. And I actually started Wall Street for the first time last night. Yeah. I hope to finish that later on. Either way, um, the film is playing at the Cobb Hollywood 16 in Tuscaloosa, and again, the Regal Trustful 16 in Birmingham. When we return, we will set our sights on the Academy Awards. FilmNerds.com creator Matt Scalici will join us. In the meantime, enjoy this track by Sad Brad Smith. This is Help Yourself. We actually played Dan Arbox going home. This is also from the Up in the Air soundtrack. But we shall be right back. This is the Movie Talk Show on 90.7 The Capstone.
0: 90.7
1: Back to the <clears throat> movie talk show as I clear my throat. The Academy Awards announced its nominees last Tuesday, unveiling the first lineup of ten in the recently changed format in the Best Picture category. The nominees, uh, the predictable, you know, the nominees included the predictable five, meaning the films that would have made the cut of five in the old format. I think that those would have been. Avatar, The Hurt Locker Up in the Air, and Glorious Bastards and Precious. Rounding out the list were Pixar's Up and Education, which we just discussed, A Serious Man, directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen, District 9, and The Blind Side. Now, we are joined by our friend, film nerds, creator, founder and creator, Matt Scalici. Matt, are you on the line? I'm here. All right, welcome, man. I'm glad you were able to join us.
0: Man, when you guys talking about education.
1: No, man. We, uh, we talked to Avatar. Graham was on the show. Um, we talked a little Avatar box office news, and then we reviewed education for just a few minutes. It's really good, too.
0: Yeah, I did not hear the show up here unfortunately. Uh, so I, I was, I was hard on my <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, I apologize for that. That's not right. Okay, well,
1: the Academy's done the 10 nomination format before, uh, it switched back in 1944. Uh, some say it switched to 5 in 1944. Now, some say the idea here was to include better-known films that appeal to mainstream audiences, which also also means that higher-grossing films should be nominated, though it should also include one or two lesser titles with substantial critical buzz. Now, one potential reason for the change came last year when uh, audience and critical favorites The Dark Knight and *Wally* failed to make the cut, prompting the Academy to sort of uh, wonder whether or not the live show's ratings would have been positively affected had they been nominated. Now, Matt, I'll give you the first question. Does the 10-film format work?
0: You know, I think it's really hard to make the film absolutely weird. You know, I, I, when, it, when they first announced it, I was actually pretty excited about it. Um, and that may, have, that may have been,
2: you know, kind of a, a, an effect of The Dark Knight and Wally as you mentioned being left out last year. You know, I really felt like, well, you know, we, we always are talking more about movies that we wish could have been nominated a lot more than we're talking about movies that are nominated and shouldn't be. So, you know, I, I guess I felt like, well, certainly, this is, this is going to be a good thing. It's going to let more movies that should have an opportunity to win Best Picture and give them that opportunity. Sorry. I think I'm sorry. I think this was the... Just to complete my thought, though, I think this was the bad year... To, to start doing this because i don't feel like this is a particularly strong year when it comes to the best picture category and i don't love content films as a as a whole group um i don't i'm not convinced that the 10 nominee format is not going to work Potentially, it'll be a good thing but i don't like it this year
0: well
1: um cory if, if they had started this last year i think it would Movies I think would have been nominated were The Dark Knight, Wally, Doubt, The Wrestler, and probably Gran Torino uh, with its box office success and Clint Eastwood's prestige, presence, sure. and yeah. love from the Academy. Uh, and in it, 2007, it, been, it started then. That was a great movie. That year. was a great uh, And I think people would have done, done the same in 2010, might be different, but what do you think? Does, does the format work? I think it absolutely works, to be honest. Uh, I was skeptical uh, originally, but, um, you know, I, I have a lot of fondness for this list of 10. Uh, when when the weakest movie is Avatar, uh, you know, a movie that I, I don't really care for, but it's the highest grossing movie of all time, I, I kind of feel like they did something right. Um, four of my personal top five movies of the year are in this Best Picture list, which is pretty, I mean, that's, that's pretty exciting for me. Um, but I think they did what they were setting out to do. They mixed uh, the smaller critically acclaimed movies with Uh, populist fare, like, like Avatar, like The Blind Side, which I think is going to be, uh, the sort of controversial film in this race, but it's not a bad movie, it, it, and, uh, a lot of people really like it, but also, they took some chances on some weirder movies, like Inglorious Bastards, like, uh, like District 9, um, they nominated the first animated film since 1992 with Up, and, uh, you know, they've got my personal favorite movies of the year with a serious man and an education in there. Uh, I can't complain about this list, to be honest. Um, and, and that even includes The Blind Side, a movie that, while I don't think is is the best movie of the year by any means, or one of the ten, it's an enjoyable movie. And while, you know, we're used to the five-movie format, it's been that way our entire lives, right. um, I think that it's appropriate, because at the end of the year, critics make lists. We all make lists, and how many movies do we normally include on those lists? Yeah, ten, ten. Ten movies, and I think it's perfectly fine for the Academy to have their own top ten list uh, of the year. Now, Matt, uh, are there any notable snubs this year?
2: Well, to me, you know, I, I think I, when I saw the informant, I, I was pretty excited about uh, just the... Crafting of that movie, I didn't expect this one to get nominated for the best picture, um, but I really thought there were aspects of it that I thought surely would get recognized. And the main, the main one I'm thinking of is the score from Marvin Hamlisch, and it's just so, uh, it's, a, it's such a special thing to to hear in a the movie these days. It's, it, you know, it was an original composition, but it sounded like it could have been lifted from uh, a film from the and it was it was just really really added so much to the movie. It made the movie have that sort of comedic identity that it had. And you know, I was disappointed to not see that in the in the uh, in the score category for sure. Um, and I think I think there you know there are probably a few technical snubs you could point out here or there, but I think for the most part, you know when we're talking about the main sort of acting categories, I can't really think of a performance that you go, wow, that was a real, you know, a real powerhouse performance we all expected to see in there and it wasn't there.
1: Um, My snubs included Marvin Amlish's score as well. I thought that it was its own character in the movie and I thought that we kind of got a glimpse of what was really going on in Mark Whitaker's head um, as he walked back and forth throughout the movie. You have this very loud and uh, sort of boisterous show tune show tuney music uh, when he's in a good mood and when he feels like a spy, you've got this very kind of creepy spy music right. that's going on. So yeah. I think that that's what is happening. That's what he's thinking. This is the music that he hears in his head as he is uh, performing his tasks as the informant. And I think that Matt Damon also might have gotten the snub. Um, it wasn't totally realistic that he would have gotten nominated. I think he might have been in the top ten of folks that could have been in that list. Um, but I would have liked to have seen that. Of course, my favorite movie of the year was Inglourious Bastards*, and I think that Melanie Laurent deserved a lot more attention than she got. Yeah. Diane Kruger got the Supporting Actress nomination at SAG, uh, which was a surprise, but I'm not going to say she didn't deserve it because I thought she did a phenomenal job in the film. Uh, I was a little surprised, even though everybody hates this film, I- I'm sort of included. Uh, Matt probably still hasn't seen it. I was a little surprised that Transformers 2 effects uh, got the snow uh, because, I mean, when you really think about it, they are far superior special effects to a lot of the films that are made, even big Hollywood blockbusters. The film's that got
2: seen fighting at night with what? shaky handheld <laughs> camera. Well,
1: it's, I, I do, you know, while the movie's not, might not be great. And while, you know, the actual scenes might not be totally communicated, uh, um, light wise, I do think that the effects are pretty monumental. Um, but the films that did get nominated, Star Trek, District nine, and Avatar were all deserving. Uh, Corey, your snubs. Well, Marvin Hamlet's just the big one, uh, as far as Matt Damon and the Informant, the Oscars did what the Oscars always do, and they just nominated him for the wrong performance. I think you can, you can safely say that his supporting actor nomination for Invictus is sort of a, a culminative uh, nomination for his, uh, for his work all year. Uh, my big three uh, are a general lack of love uh, for Bright Star, uh, Jane Campion's new movie, which I adore. Uh, it, it showed up in costume design, but really should have showed up in, in at least best actress uh, and best—I uh, don't know what screenplay designation it was—it was designated to be in. Um, the general lack of love for Fantastic Mr. Fox, which uh,
2: showed up. Yeah, in, I'll go with you on that. Yeah. Here,
1: right, too, I was surprised that it didn't get more attention. Than I, I expected an adapted screenplay nomination uh, that it didn't receive, uh, or at least uh, you know, Petey's song. Being an original song, or best original song uh, nominee, but I guess they don't reward bad songwriting. Um, and then also uh, Anthony Mackey in The Hurt Locker in Supporting Actor. Uh, that's still one of my favorite supporting performances of last year. Uh, totally compliments the uh, nominated Jeremy Renner's performance, and uh, I think the two of them together really make that movie so special. Uh, since they love The Hurt Locker so much, I was kind of surprised that he didn't show up. And, you know, even though this film is fairly polarizing and it's there, there is sort of a split decision from audiences and critics, I was a little surprised that Where the Wild Things Are didn't get any mention at all. Right. Yeah, I thought maybe... It could squeeze into visual effects or costume design, perhaps even art direction. And maybe even a screenplay nomination, I think, had the movie been released a little bit later, it had an outside chance, but I didn't really expect it to. I don't really understand why it's not in the original song category. Yeah, a lot of people thought that the score, too, by Karen o and Carter Burwell, might uh, sneak in as well. It's but worthy.
2: Yeah, well. Good luck trying to figure out the original song. Yeah, you yeah I mean... Ever. <laughs> It never makes any sense. I'll throw in another snub for that category, which is the Ed Helm
0: snub from
2: The Hangover. That should have been in there, too.
1: Well, guys, uh, let's be quick with this. What do we think the Oscars are really rewarding these days? I mean, if you look at recent winners, I'd wager that critics and audiences could debate endlessly on whether uh, what one was actually deserving. Are the nominations becoming more symbolic of a film's intangibles? And by that, I mean the box office performance, whether an A-list actor uh, plays against type or, uh, whether the films had well-mounted uh, campaigns during awards season. Uh, Matt, what do the Oscars
2: really
0: kind of mean to us these days?
2: You know, we're. I think I think it is a year-to-year thing, and I think we always, when we see a list, you know, Corey said this is a popular list of Best Picture nominees this year. Um, and, and over the past 10 years, there have been some years where it was really sort of commercially driven, it looks like, and there have been some years where, uh, it, it, didn't seem to care at all about getting ratings or appealing to, you know, the mass public and the movies that they saw during the years. But I think, it, I think this is always an ever shifting thing. I don't really see any sign that there's kind of momentum to really start, uh, you know, rewarding the commercially successful films. I mean, I'll be disappointed if Avatar was the best picture, uh, because I think it will be a move designed, you know, to to drive things like sales and ratings and stuff. But I, uh, you know, we we can't really make the judgment on what Oscar's going to reward this year until we see uh, who they hand the awards out to. I think think that, uh, you know, I certainly still believe that unlike almost every major award in every other artistic industry, I think the Oscars still have a very large uh, amount of credibility, if you want to say, when it comes to, you know, rewarding great work by great artists, and I think uh, I, certainly there's a commercial aspect to it, but I think the the Oscars have done the best job of uh, really preserving their integrity, um, and you know, I, I, I'm always hopeful that they're going to do that this year, and I guess I, I'm not going to be pessimistic about them until I see who they actually hand the awards to this year. Corey?
1: I mean, I think that's well said. Uh, in
2: the past couple of
1: years, we've seen them reward uh, the work, <laughs> I think. We've seen them reward uh, a really challenging Coen Brothers movie two years ago with No Country for Old Men, and last year, a movie that they just liked, that everybody liked with Slumdog Millionaire. Uh, this that was year, a pretty popular choice. It? Yeah, I, I would think so. I would think yeah. so. Um, this year, yeah, I mean, I agree with Matt. I, I don't know. Uh, it's between Avatar, the big populist juggernaut, and The Hurt Locker, a twelve million dollar grossing critical favorite. It's almost like the two movies are battling for the soul of the Academy Awards, uh, in in a way. Um, and I, you know, I don't know. I don't know how it's going to go. Um, like Matt said, I would I would personally be disappointed if, if Avatar won, uh, but I can see the reasoning behind it. Well, so let's go with some early predictions here. Is Avatar in the driver's seat, um, or is it a two or three horse race between it, Herlock, her Locker, former favorite up in the air, or maybe even the potential spoiler? I really do uh, think that this has the chance to pull the upset. Quentin Tarantino's glorious bastards. I think there's a shot there because it's got the Academy campaign MVP in its corner, Harvey Weinstein, who can make these things happen sometimes. Um. Now, I think the acting awards are pretty much sewn up. I yep. think your winners are going to be Jeff Bridges, Sandra Bullock, Monique, Christoph Waltz. Uh, we can pretty much take that to the bank. But um, Matt, early predictions on picture and director? Uh,
2: I think I think we'll see it split. Um, you know, I think I think if you see Tarantino win director, uh, and I, I mean, I think he's going to win original screenplay already. But I think if he gets the if he gets the director award, or, uh, you know, I think that means he's probably out for picture. And I think if you see Catherine Bigelow win Best Director, uh, I'd start to worry about how the night's going to end, because I think Avatar probably will, probably will win it. Corey, um, I'm sorry, Matt. You know, no, I mean, that was pretty much it. I, I, think, I think Avatar... Is going to win just from how much it seems like everybody in Hollywood, from actors to filmmakers, is just absolutely in love with that movie. Um, but, you know, I'm, I am hopeful that something, some that could happen like the Hurt Locker or maybe even Inglorious Master. So I think that's a, a lotto type odd for that one.
1: Corey, do you think that Avatar's record breaking box office virtually locks its win? No. No. I, I think that, uh, that that's that's the conventional thought uh for for oscar prognosticators but the hurt locker has dominated the precursor awards it's won the producers guild of america award it it won the director's guild of america award for Catherine bigelow um i think for the past 30 years the director's guild award has lined up with best picture every time but like six times or something it's got a it's got a pretty intimidating record of matching up with best picture. Uh, now, that I, I'm not sold on it. I think I think that, that The Hurt Locker, uh, given its its domination so far with the Precursor Awards, is in the, is, is the front runner. I'm not going to... I wouldn't dare say, though, that, that it uh, is locked in, because I think it is a two-movie race between Avatar and The Hurt Locker, uh, but I think Catherine Bigelow is pretty much locked in to become the first uh, female... Recipient of the Best Director award. Let's not forget one very important precursor that has proven to uh, shake things up a little bit. SAG and Glorious Bastards right. brought home SAG, and don't forget what happened in two thousand five no, when Straight Back Mountain pretty much they they pretty much dominated the precursors just like the Hurt Locker did, and uh, Crash swooped in. To win SAG and then to eventually win Best Picture. No, I think Glorious Bastards* does. It, it's the one movie that has an outside shot. You're Keep right, about an that. eye on it. And I mean, we won't get into this, but uh, *Up in the Air* seemed like it had you know, it, it was gaining steam back when it was initially opening, and uh, a lot of people thought that it was the shoe in. But things happen during these awards seasons. Other so movies come out. People actually see the movies we think are going to be the oh. Oscar contenders and decide that they're not. Uh, they Matt early.
2: Up in the air. Yeah. Just what? So they peaked early. Yeah,
1: up yeah, I think you're right. But I do think it's going to get kind of like the obligatory uh, Miss Congeniality Award for Best Screenplay. Yeah. I think, uh, Jason Reitman and that guy, Sheldon Turner, will walk <laughs> away with the Oscar as well. Uh, Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Um, FilmNerds.com is the website. Hopefully we'll see some updates in the very near future. <laughs>
2: I'm working on it, guys. Like, <laughs> I, I, got, I got some other responsibilities, one of which you might have heard screaming in the background. During right. Interview. So, well... <laughs>
1: um, but thanks for joining us Matt and uh, hopefully you'll come on again
2: yeah I'll, uh, I'll see you guys again soon thanks hopefully.
1: dude alright sounds good uh, we're going to take a little break uh, I'm going to play you a little bit of Ramones uh, before we come back and we will wrap up the show give you some DVD picks and make some announcements about some Oscar nominees that are playing at a theater near you even as close as Tuscaloosa so keep it right here on 90.7 this is the movie talk show and coming up next is Henri Cherami with Hair of the Dog or should I say uh, Professor Werewolf, uh, we will be right back.
0: I am going to tell her. You should totally tell her, I'm man. I'm going to. Because I watched this movie called Liar Liar, and the message was don't lie. And that was a smart movie. 90.7! We are back here on 90.7 The Capstone, and yes, that is the Ying Twins that he's playing
1: under us. You're joining. Uh, Corey Kraft, and myself, Ben Flanagan, this is the Movie Talk Show, and we're going to get into some DVD picks very quickly. Let's make this fast, Corey, because we want to make room for our friend that is going to be following us. Uh, so badly, want to call this next up in Kraft Services, this is so good uh, name we're going to go with that. This is your um, recommending three new releases that were released on DVD this week. You want to go next week? Go next week. I might have to, because this week was somewhat slim pickings, and I, I wouldn't dare recommend Amelia to our, our listening audience. Wouldn't wish that upon anybody. Uh, this week, though, you can catch the uh, the horror comedy Zombie Land uh, starring Woody Harrelson and Jesse Eisenberg. It's a uh, very sharp, very funny, uh, and just a lot of fun. Uh, particularly if you enjoy uh, the the zombie movie genre. I wouldn't dare put it in the category with Shaun of the Dead, which I think is you know a legitimately perfect movie uh, in in just about every way. But uh, Zombie Land's great fun. Um, second. Uh, Also out this week is a a tiny indie horror movie called The House of the Devil uh, from relatively new director Ty West. Uh, It is an inspired uh, homage to sort of 70s and 80s slasher movies uh, designed and filmed in in the manner that uh, those movies were. Uh, But what I like about this movie is that it's done without any sense of irony It's done without a a wink or a nudge. You know, it's played completely straight. and That makes it a lot of fun. Um, Jumping ahead to this Tuesday at at your retailer or rental store of choice, uh, you can find my personal favorite movie of the year, uh, Joel and Ethan Coen's A Serious Man, on DVD uh, on February 9th. Um, It's sort of a very black uh, existential comedy uh, about a... uh, a professor, a, a Jewish professor in uh, 1967 who suddenly wakes up to find every possible thing in his life is going wrong. Uh, it's structured similarly to something like uh, the Book of Job, which a lot of people su- suggest that was the the Coen brothers' inspiration for this film. Awesome. And that movie is going to be closing or opening the Jewish Film Festival? It's opening the Jewish Film Festival on February 27th. Yeah. So if you've got to see it on the big screen, uh, you, you can do that at the family theater. In Tuscaloosa. Uh, but it will be on DVD, available to everybody. Yes. Um, okay, I'm going to go with my DVD picks. We call this the BF Double Dose, which is going to be uh, me recommending just random, a pair of random movies, old and new. Let's stick to our Oscar theme by going with movies that won awards. Instead of getting two random, I'll go ahead and give you two movies featuring performances that won Best Supporting Actor. And how about Michael Caine and Woody Allen's Hannah and Her Sisters? Uh, from 1986, and Martin Landau and Tim Burton's masterpiece, Ed Wood, in 1994. Those are my two picks. Two great performances, two great movies. Awesome movies. Okay, let's make some quick announcements, and we'll get out of here. Uh, Crazy Heart is playing in Birmingham at the Lee Branch, in Patton Creek Raves, Carmike 16, or Summit 16, I should say, Regal's Trustful 16, uh, all those in Birmingham. Uh, and I got a word from a cop corporate representative that it might arrive in Tuscaloosa this upcoming Friday or next Friday, I should say. A single man is playing at the Rave Motion Picture Theater in Vestavia Hills. Precious has also come back and is playing at the Patton Creek Rave in Regal Trustful 16. The Young Victoria, garnering only a costume design nomination, I think, is also playing at the Summit in Birmingham. The Road, which failed to garner any nominations, is playing at the Lee Branch Rave in Birmingham. Oscar nominees currently playing in Tuscaloosa include An Education, Avatar. The Lovely Bones, Sherlock Holmes, and, of course, the Best Picture nominee, The Blind Side. Keep an eye out on the Bama Art House Film Series, sponsored by the Tuscaloosa Arts Council and uh, held at the beautiful Bama Theater in downtown Tuscaloosa. Next week, they will screen the Japanese film Still Walking on Tuesday night. Uh, so far, they have screened Moon, Bright Star, and Black Dynamite. close the series, they have You the Living and the hilarious British comedy In the Loop uh, in the coming weeks, so stay tuned for details on those. Now, opening nationwide next week are The Wolfman, directed by Joe Johnston and starring Benicio Del Toro, Anthony Hopkins, Hugo Weaving, and Emily Blunt. Uh, I think we're excited about that. Maybe, maybe not. Also opening is Gary Marshall's Valentine's Day. I have a feeling Corey and I will probably lean towards The Wolfman, but you just never know. (laughs) Now, we hope to podcast this and other episodes of the show. You can find uh, on my blog at beenaround.tumblr.com to see any updates. Corey and I also frequently write film-focused Facebook notes. So if that's your preference, there's that. You will also soon find us on Twitter, but you've got to wait for the handle. If you have any feedback, you can email, email us at 90.7movies at gmail.com. If you feel we've missed something or you just have any suggestions as to films we can review or topics we can discuss, please do email us at 90.7movies at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and be sure to catch us next Saturday at 9 a.m. here on 90.7 FM. To close out every week, this is Cineo Morricone's Rabia E. Tarantella, uh, featured in the closing credits of Twin Tarantino's and Glorious Bastards. Corey Kraft, I'm Ben Flanagan. Stay tuned for Hair of the Dog. Goodbye.